Hello and welcome to the Scottish Politics Podcast. My name's David Clegg. I'm the political editor of The Daily Record and your host. You join me in the Record's Scottish Parliament office on Thursday afternoon, where we have just recently heard that Mark MacDonald, the Aberdeen Dawnside MSP, will be suspended from the Parliament for a month after the Standards Committee found that he had been guilty of sexual harassment. We'll be discussing that, plus First Minister's questions and some of the other events of the week in Scottish politics. And I'm delighted to be joined by two brilliant guests from the Labour Party. I have the former Scottish Labour leader, Joanne Lamont, and from the SNP, I have Gillian Martin. Thanks both for joining me. Hello. Hello there. Joanne, I just have a, a quick chat with you before we get we get on to the, the main the main events here because you have decided that you are going to make a bid for Westminster. Can you tell us a bit about what you've been doing and what the plan is and uh, what made you decide that you fancied a, a crack at Westminster after so long at Hollywood? Uh, well, I dress everything up I do as a plan and you're, you're going to an interesting place. Um, I've had a wonderful time as an elected member of Scottish Parliament, been here since 99 and I'd already decided that it was time to move on, that somebody else could be uh, step up to, to represent the area that I uh, love dearly in the, in, the, in the Scottish Parliament. I was then asked if I would consider standing for Westminster, which was interesting, and I thought, well, there is something I can take there, which is perhaps unusual, and that's my experience of this institution, the importance of this institution in Scottish politics. In, if I was able to inform Westminster in that way, I think that would be great. Probably more importantly, I thought it would give us a good shout and a good fight. And see, we don't know which election will come first. Mm. And I want to be part of rebuilding people's confidence in the Labour Party in Glasgow. And I believe I'm in a good position to do that. So really, it's that opportunity to go out and talk to people, campaign, as I've always done, um, about things that matter to people and how we as the Labour Party could make a difference. We might change the place where I might serve in a, what will be a challenging election, but I think the, the principles I hold would remain the same. It could be four years until the election, that's not when it's scheduled to be. Are you anticipating that it might come earlier, the next Westminster election, given what's happening with Brexit and what have you? Well, <laughs> it could be tomorrow, it could be in four years' time. I think I'm working on the basis, as ever, that our job is to go out and speak to people about the issues that are concerning them, understand politically what's happening, try to rebuild the confidence in the Labour Party, and in electoral terms, it's whichever election comes first will be the election that we'll be fighting. But the messages around uncertainty and security that people are facing are the same. And so it feels to me the decision I made was not about the election when it would come, but about how we go about campaigning locally to tackle you know, the challenges that the Labour Party faces. Gillian, let me just speak to you for a minute uh, before we go on to the actual uh, topics of the day. Uh, you were first elected in 2016 yeah. and I had Ash Denham from the SNP on recently and she yeah. was telling the story about how she got into politics and what wanted her to made her want to become an MSP uh, with the independence referendum and getting involved in politics. Is your, is your story quite similar to that pathway? It's, it's kind of similar to Ash Denham. I actually served on the board of Room for Independence with Ash Denham and Jean Freeman, actually. So I think that Ash and I have quite a similar story. Um, I, I think I, my my politics um, have always been the same, more or less, but I, they were, I wasn't active in, in the party. Um, I was more sort of a local campaigner. I was... Uh, you know, I was one of the people with a placard when the, the whole Trump situations that yeah. kicked off in Aberdeenshire. That won't make, make me very popular with some people in the SNP, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was that 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 thorn in their side, well, along with quite a lot of other people. So I've always been very political, very active, and an activist with local issue, 
issues. Um, of course, once you've been through something like the referendum, um, it didn't even occur to me that I would stand for office at all until people started saying, well, would you stand, would you stand, have you thought about it? And it was like, well, actually, yeah, I, I would like to do that. Um, so, uh, I, Joanne was just saying there, but you don't know what's going to come first. And of course, the general election came first and I, I was... Uh, been kind of elbowed by women for independence going go for go for Westminster go for Westminster and I actually did go for candidacy there but I didn't want it mm. and I was actually very relieved when I didn't get it because I wasn't ready mm. and I always thought in my head you know you have to take what comes next you know and step up you can't just pick and choose but if I did have my choice it would have been the Scottish Parliament so things worked out perfectly from that regard. And how have you found it compared to how you expected to find it? Um, I suppose I, I realised actually that the, the processes of the Parliament, how little I, I actually knew about the kind of the day-to-day working of the Parliament. You know, um, I guess it's, it's been an education in that respect. Um, it's been an education on how hard, and this is probably going to have a lot of people laughing, but how hard politicians actually work. I mean, Joanne and I both come from education, so we know that if you know, you've been a teacher, no one ever works as hard as, as teachers do anyway, so it's a breeze for us because it's, not, <laughs> it's, not, it's nothing compared to standing up in front of 20, 20 teenagers. Um, but uh, it's been an education, but it's also been one of the best decisions I ever made. Let's talk about, we may talk about some of those parliament procedures with this topic. Obviously, the, the, the thing that's running the headlines, it's leaving the news bulletins this afternoon, is that uh, Mark MacDonald, the former SNP minister, uh, has, there's been a long-running investigation into his behaviour and it has been found that he is guilty of sexually harassing a member of staff at the parliament and he, uh, they're recommending, although it needs to be uh, approved by the entire parliament, that he's suspended for a month without pay. Joanne, what have you made of this whole situation about the way the parliament's dealt with it, about how it's, what it's said about the processes here and, and, and what's your take on it? I think that the parliament's tried to take it seriously once it's come into the public domain and I think what has been welcome is the broader approach on sexual harassment, speaking to staff, staff members, doing a survey and so on and really trying to get a sense of how much of an issue is, to what extent it's like any other workplace and I suspect it is like other workplaces except perhaps there are more cameras trained in people in terms of getting reactions and so on. So I think the Parliament has tried to take it very seriously. I know that the Standards Committee itself has taken it seriously. There is a different dimension to it. There's this, the public nature of it and the representative nature of our jobs which brings it all out in, in the full glare. But I think if the message is it doesn't really matter where you are or how powerful you are. It's unacceptable to be using that power against somebody who's in a, you know, maybe particularly that relationship between somebody who's an employer and somebody who's an employee. And there is a difficulty, and I'm not quite sure how we deal with it, where each individual MSP is an employer. And so for the institution of the Parliament to manage that process, I think, is quite difficult. But I would say, from the point of view of the broader issue about saying to people in, out there in, in Scotland... The question of sexual harassment is unacceptable wherever it happens and we need to find ways of giving people confidence to speak out and responding seriously when they do. Gillian, what's your thoughts? I think um, there's... I don't want anyone to ever think that just because this has been done that that's the end of it. Mm. I think we need to be taking this very seriously and be, um, 
I, I'm, I'm interested in what the Parliament's doing around the training of people. They've said that they want to do more training for people, but I actually, I, we had a, a, a debate on it last, last week. I think it's incumbent on all the parties to be doing training as well, where part of their part of their vetting procedure um, and having training around sexual harassment and what it is, um, and, and if it's if it's something that people sub- subconsciously doing that they're able to recognise what they're doing can be offensive to other people. I, I, I'm... I'm always a little bit nervous of, of like the Parliament being seen to be cleaning up the mess that maybe has been created because there hasn't been proper and stringent betting procedures. I mean, I'm not talking about that case particularly, but we can't let parties off the hook as well. Parliament can have procedures, and I think the Parliament have dealt with this in a way that the only way they can, but there's only so much Parliament can do. I think we need to be looking at the type of people that we actually put up as candidates, and the parties have to take more responsibility for that. And when it's established as an issue, addressing it rather than the party kind of maybe coming round and protecting the person. Yeah. If our initial instinct is just to try and protect somebody because it's going to damage our parties, then I think we're doing people yeah. um, a disservice. I think You're absolutely right. The other thing, Joanne, I would say is that when you've got somebody that's working for an MSP, they're often party members as well. So they have a loyalty to the party. They don't want to do anything that brings the party into disrepute. Now, you know, the argument is that the person perpetrating is bringing the party into disrepute. But you know that it's going to be an absolute fury there and it's going to do damage to the cause yeah. that you actually care very much well, about. Well, we know it's very difficult to raise these types of issues in any situation that adds a whole other layer of complication yeah. doesn't it? But I think there's also this thing that, that's t- part of the political world I try to treat my office as an office and expect that people work office hours and partly because I come from, from a teaching background where I knew what my hours were and when I would be expected to work and I might work after hours and so on but that's my choice. I don't. I think there's too much of an expectation yes. of the staff round about um, a member that there's somehow an extension of their the way they present themselves to the world, I hesitate to say their ego, but that idea, the, the MSP brand is somehow reinforced by these people supporting them and helping them, that's part of it, so we are perhaps expecting too much that people are not able to say, that's my working life and that's my private life, that's separate from that. And that also this thing, I think, about a lot of people come into politics as employees who may have their own party political ambitions, yeah. and so they're not wanting to rock the boat because Absolutely. they may have... a at some point in the future, aspire to be an MSP, and we need to break down that culture. It just feels to me that there's an issue about the nature of the job, how professionally we behave as MSPs and how we are delineating in professional terms what an employee's job is. And I think too often there's a blurring of the lines from one to the other. So your job as an employee is to somehow enhance the role of your MSPs. You maybe um, expect to do things work harder, work longer hours, not have them kind of defined in the way you would have in a normal workplace. There's an interesting window into that actually. The the there's a Twitter there's a Twitter account called MSP Staffer. And it's jokey and whatever. I mean it's meant to be run by somebody that's in the parliament. But some of the things that would be when your MSP does this, when your MSPs are I've been horrified by some of the things that are in there that I would never do that, you know, yeah. to your staff. You know, there's an expectation that maybe some people have on their staff to be at their beck and call twenty four hours seven. To organise their life effectively. Yeah, I, and, and and that's not what their job is at all. You know, there'll be parliamentary assistance, there'll be constituency yeah. assistance. That's that you know, so yeah, absolutely I think you have to break that down. And I think also 
that campaigning with people can also maybe maybe look at like friendship and then you maybe employ those people and yet they have to be they're your employee but people don't always recalibrate that relationship with the people that they were campaigning with shoulder by shoulder before they were elected i think there's also another thing about people not recognizing that that, that they are in a powerful position and that they, whether they, they think of themselves as being the best person in the world or not, as soon as they actually have a relationship with their employee, I mean relationship in sort of, you know, the, the broad employer relationship, you have power over them. And you also have power over people who are other uh, staffers and other people that work in the parliament. And the, there has to be a recognition of that fact. And with that power comes the responsibility of being ultra professional because it does seem that there's been it's possibly because of their high profile people but the the sexual harassment in the politics world with the mark mcdonald case we've obviously mentioned but also we've had numerous cases in westminster and in other parliaments across the world is is there something distinct about the political life that makes this uh more prevalent or is it just because there's more media scrutiny of it than it's going on equally everywhere i think it's going on everywhere I mean, I don't, I, don't think, I don't think there'll be a woman in this building who hasn't been sexually harassed at one point at work. I mean, I think there was people very rare. I mean, I think, it, and I guess that comes back to that, the spotlights on politics, the spotlights on the entertainment industry, of course, because that's more interesting for people to read about, you know, some more sort of gossipy. But if you, come back, come back to my original point, if you focus too much on that something been done to certain people and you think it's all okay now you can't you've constantly got to be battling against it to make yeah. sure that also, it, it so doesn't happen anywhere i think the other thing is that probably we have more recourse here so yes there are challenges yes there are boundaries being broken you know there's the friendships there's a the campaign and you know community and all the rest of it but there's an awful lot of young women working in insecure work and zero hours contracts in places across scotland you're not able to open their mouths. Yeah. You're not able to say a thing because if you say anything, they have no recourse anywhere to protect them. And, you know, um, I do think that kind of role, for example, for trade unions, and I think there has been conversations in the Scottish Parliament about the role of trade unions in this, in the workplace, that role becomes a really important one because it puts a protection, a buffer between you and your employer where you've got very few rights. And I think that's another whole area that we need to look at. There's no doubt, I have no doubt in my mind that... When it became evident to the Scottish Parliament there was an issue, it was taken seriously. I think politically the world has moved on as well from perhaps what you know, the world of the past. But I do think across our workplaces there's some employees who are particularly vulnerable. Is there then a is that. there then a concern, Gillian, that if the world of politics and the world of parliaments and policy is struggling to get its own house in order? It's them that the, 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 the girl on a zero-hour contract somewhere is depending on to set the climate for everywhere else and to set the culture and the legal framework for it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would also say that you can't, ever under, you can't ever underestimate how much it takes for someone to come forward, even if they're not in a zero-hour mm-hmm. contract. Even when you have got you know, however many years' service, that you have got a contract, that you've, you're in with the bricks, to be able to, be able to come out and accuse someone, particularly someone who has power over you of sexual harassment, is still pretty much like saying, I am preparing myself to leave that job. Mm. You know? And have you not got a sense of humour? Which is the kind of yeah. thing you're... And you have to say person, over and over yeah. and over again and justify is yourself. Is it really that serious? You yeah. Know? So these are, these are all means by which the thing is 
is diminished, but we, we know that these things can... You're right, I think, for a lot of people, once they've decided they have to say that, they're also admitting that they can't work there anymore. Yeah, absolutely, and certainly that, that, that was my experience, but also I would say that the structures are often not there for women to come forward. And then that's one of the things that the Parliament is working really hard at, mm. having the structures in place for people to come forward. But you just have to look at how long this process has taken, the one we're yeah. talking about today. Now, for, 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 and then for both sides of the equation, for both the person that has been accused and the people that are doing the accusing, we're talking now seven, eight months of a protracted uh, process that is uh, going to be very damaging to, and, and also people around it as well, families around it. So I have to, I think we have to get better at uh, looking at the structures in place for reporting and also investigating quickly because, um, I mean, th- this particular uh, incident and case aside, you also have to think of the people who've maybe been uh, accused of doing something who haven't done anything as well and the toll that that might take on them, as well as the people who are actually coming forward too. So I think the process has to get a lot leaner and quicker and more efficient. But uh, absolutely, we, we, we do set the tone for what happens in other, in other workplaces. I'm not entirely confident that it will, though, because if the focus is too much on us, it might just be, the lens might just be so focused on us that it ignores the fact that it's happening all over Scotland. Okay. We'll have to move on uh, to some other topics. Uh, First Minister's questions this afternoon uh, was dominated by education from the Scottish Conservatives and the Lib Dems. But I'll maybe start on an issue that was raised by Richard Leonard, the Scottish Labour leader today. He's talking about uh, the impact of uh, a private uh, care provider uh, who closed 12 care homes across Scotland, Beald, uh, and the impact on, on, on one individual who, who had been there, was disrupted, had to move, and has, has now, uh, unfortunately and tragically died. Jo- Joanne, you were, uh, you were up there doing First Minister's questions many times. O- often we see these kind of personal stories being raised. Do you think that's the m- more difficult type of exchange in the Chamber? I think there is, there's a place for it. I've often said in politics the most powerful thing is testimony. If somebody tells their story... First of all, you can't deny it. You have to respond to it and you have to treat it with respect. And I also think when you hear testimony of problems that somebody brings forward, like in a case study, say somebody comes to me as a constituent, I always used to try and help them and then work out what were the politics of that meant that happened. And then that you take that into the political domain. So I think it's a legitimate way of demanding attention for what is the deeper question. I actually know the family. I, I worked and was involved in this campaign. I know that the granddaughter, who was a very powerful advocate for um, our grandmother, a sheer force of nature in herself, and her anger way back was that Beald was able to say they changed the business plan. The business plan meant that this couldn't happen, and, and you couldn't help be touched and moved by that sense. It felt very much like the gap between what, they were, what the, the business of Beald was and how they wouldn't change the plan without any... It felt like proper regard for the human consequences of it. So I guess the political point I would take from that is what are we doing rounding the funding and support for older people that you can end up in this position? In fact, the point was made at the time the campaign first came into the public domain 
that if Beald is doing this with the reputation it had within communities, what's happening in poorer nursing homes and homes for older people. And I think that's the kind of, what I suppose, that what, where you would want now the Scottish government to be looking at this. They can't control what the private sector is doing. But if we are funding places um, in elderly care which become fragile like that, we need to write in stability into whatever contracts the procurement is. Gillian, one one aspect that I thought the First Minister might have been a bit constrained in saying, but I'm not constrained in saying it, is that this was obviously a decision by a private care home build. It wasn't a government decision which which has led to this situation. Obviously there's an expectation that the government will do what they can to lessen the impact on the the people affected. I'm just wondering what you you thought about Labour raising this issue and and, and how how that exchange played out. Yeah, and I, I, I think so. there was a little bit there, um, quite a lot there, about people asking the government to intervene in things that are decisions by private companies, that you know, business decisions that they've made. But to, in, in a certain way, I, mean, I agree with some of the stuff that Joanne's just actually said around actually ensuring that we learn the lessons from what actually happened there so that when these contracts go out, there's some, some mechanism in there that means that people have a sort of continuity of care or that companies aren't able just to sort of like up and leave and leave very vulnerable people in a situation. I think actually, I mean, in terms of care homes, I think one of the, the biggest... I mean, I'm, I'm, move, I'm moving this on from the actual specific example here, but I think one of the biggest problems that the care sector is going to face in the next couple of years is the very uncertain nature about um, the, the leaving the European Union and where that's going to leave these companies in terms of being able to actually recruit people and mm-hmm. stay stay viable. I think that's going to be something that's going to make a lot of... It's happened in my constituency already, but they haven't been able to recruit people to keep them open. And I just I just wonder how the care sector is actually going to be able to survive given the kind of uncertainty around immigration and whatever. So that's another thing that might rattle these businesses and make it's them very difficult to, be, to operate. It may be that we should also be asking, should these businesses be the place that we're relying on to deliver that yeah, kind of care? Yeah, that's an argument. Because, yeah. you know, we... My grave concern around um, support for older people, we, we, we recognise we want to stop people going inappropriately into care homes to be supported in a family, supported in their mm. own homes, sure. but for too many that actually means not being sustained there but being contained there. So somebody come in for 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes at night, think of it with me, I would rather be living in a community with other people rather than being relying on people just that very kind of minimalist care. So I think it's a big, big story here, a, a big challenge for us. And I'm wondering whether actually the lesson of BUILD is that, because a lot of the, the places that have been funded with BUILD will be funded by the public purse. Yeah. So should we be, you know, how do, is it a, a way for looking at the, the whole care sector in a different way? It take a longer time. We're not going to sort that overnight. But I do worry about vulnerable people ending up um, well, it was the case without, of- any, without any kind of public... Um, standards around mm-hmm. how they're being supported. Now, I'm not saying that Build offered very good care. That's precisely the problem mm-hmm. in these circumstances. It was the, it was the break and the and the change for older people. It, you know, it, it proved in this case really tragic. So, but I think I suppose what I would want Scotch and all of us to be thinking about, given the challenges of um, of the increasingly older population. What are we? What? How are we funding it? And what are we funding? And are we? You know, we know. 
that um, a lot of care workers are very poorly paid. Yes. They're under phenomenal pressure, particularly those who are going out into mm. people's homes. They're get, you know, there's a phrase called task and go, which is you're not supposed to look at the person, just do what you're supposed to be in for and get out, which is utterly heartless and I'm sure so destroying and we're actually, care workers we're, themselves. We're leeching, we're leeching care workers out to other areas um, where they don't have the same kind of like stresses on them but they're able to earn the same money and certainly I had a, a, a case of a lady that came to see me that had worked in care, loved their job but it was getting you know very very stressful because they had short staff shortages mm-hmm. because my area would really have, mm-hmm. have a problem with people being able to afford to work in, in that, that kind of sector when there's like quite higher work, um, earning jobs in oil and gas, for example, even in the periphery of oil and gas. Mm-hmm. But this woman was saying, you know, I actually ended up just going and working in Asda because I could earn the same money. And that's a, a, a fantastic person who actually really mm-hmm. cared about the people that she worked with who came out of the sector because actually she was, you know, having to plug holes for the staff yeah. that they couldn't find and uh, got to the point where she actually left the profession that she loved and went and worked in the shop. Well, that was the case of Christina Wilson, which was raised at First Minister's questions today. There, uh, the First Minister said she was going to review the situation, and it sounds like there might be quite quite a lot of issues to, to look at about the care sector more widely. Another exchange at First Minister's questions this afternoon uh, was it was a question that was brought up by an SNP backbencher, Ruth Maguire. It's about Donald Trump's planned visit to uh, the UK and potentially Scotland next month, and uh, how the UK should deal with him. He is the President of the United States but he's also um, responsible for policies which are causing a lot of concern across the world if, uh, and in Scotland as well. Gillian, what, 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 are you, what are your thoughts? We've heard that you've got a long history of protesting Donald yeah. Trump. Are, you, are course, you dusting the placards out again? Well, of course the thing is that um, if he does come to Scotland, will he be visiting the, his golf course in my constituency? And I suppose I need to think about how I'm, I'm <laughs> going to handle that. Um, I'm pretty sure that I certainly won't be getting invited to any kind of receptions. But um, I think we are in a really difficult position. You said it straight away. He is the President of the United States and we need to respect the fact that he was voted in as the President. So there is a... But it's the rolling out of the red carpet and also that using... I mean, I guess using the opportunity um, of... If he has to come here, if he has to come here as the president, we have to use it as an opportunity to make it clear to him how we feel about some of the things that he's been he's been doing. I mean, it's, it's human, yeah, I'd say human rights violations, children's rights violations that have been happening, absolutely uh, unconscionable stuff that's been going on at the moment, and also this signing of an executive order and making it look like he's actually the knight and the, the white horse coming to save these yeah. children. It's absolute nonsense. They've still got a situation. And it looks like they're going to be just detained with their parents. They're still going to be detained. And also there's the issue of how many kids are there going to be that they're not going to be able to re- reunite with their parents? And there's that whole issue as well. A lot, a lot of kids have been put all over the place. So um, we have to make it clear. This is how things things escalate and things happen and little pernicious things mm. happen in regimes and we have to be in at the very start saying what's unacceptable to it's, the international community. It was interesting commentary, I mean I found this week utterly, utterly dispiriting, distressing and amongst the, you know, the, the children's crying, you know, yeah. you, just, mm. you just feel it in your soul and th- what really struck me was that he was revelling, or revelling in the outrage, he was loving it. And somebody put something out, making a comparison with the Holocaust, these are how these things start. And they said, these are not how these things start, they've already started. Yeah. 
This has started this language about people, talking people as vermin, people, you know, dehumanising people. We were coming soon to remember the, the slaughter in Srebrenica in Bosnia. That didn't happen overnight, and the lesson of it is that you have to be vigilant from way back there. And I'm so disturbed this week by the language around what he was saying. And I worry, and I know one leader has said that he wants to be part of campaigning against a Trump visit. I'm appalled that Trump is going to come, but I also know that he can surf the noise of outrage. He'll yeah. enjoy that. It feeds yeah. him. But if he hears yeah. a cold, hard voice telling him exactly what we think of him, there's a... Um, he was being defended by somebody who quoted from the Bible and a Jesuit priest has come out and just done an analysis of what I think it's um, one of St Paul's letters explaining to what extent you have to obey the law. And he's saying God's law is much greater than that. And I think It's just the whole thing. We need the cold, calm voices of people been so disgusted. It's like the young woman broadcaster, I don't know if you've seen it on Twitter, but she breaks down trying yeah, to tell my so story. Yeah. And that tells you Humanity is appalled by this. I think it's a diplomatic challenge for others far above my pay grade to work out how to do this. Well, I mean, but it is going to be difficult for Nicola Sturgeon if she's invited to some reception or something, To given given the context that you both just laid out there, to yeah. make polite chit-chat and eat canopies with them. I don't think that polite chit-chat is where, where they're at. And I, I actually would say, well, today's a maze going to be in the situation as well. I mean, I think the hand-holding has to stop for a kick-off. And again, I think that the, the leaders that he interacts with have to make it very clear to him that it's unacceptable to be doing the sort of thing that he does. But as Joanne says, there is a part of that that he loves. Yeah. And you also know? see the thing about hand-holding to go back to our earlier conversation. He knew exactly what he was doing when he did that to Theresa May. I'm no yes. fan of Theresa May. Yeah. Theresa May didn't reach out her hand to hold his hand. There was a wee power play going on there, and that was the most horrendous image. I just hope, um, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near him, but I'm not in a position where I have to make that decision. But I think the most powerful message is when people look him in the eye when they're supposed to be doing all the nice stuff and they tell them what they think of him. Yeah. And tell them, how, do, how, could you, how can you sleep at night mm. with these babies crying for their mums yeah. or dads? Let them come here and let people who are in a position where they're in front of them be very blunt about how they feel. And I guess people will, will want to demonstrate that as well, as we always have done in the past. Yeah. OK, well, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, Donald Trump is due in the UK on July 13th. Uh, We'll be back next week for the last podcast before the Scottish Parliament breaks for the summer recess. So I'd just like to thank Gillian Martin and Joanne Lamont for joining us again today. And we'll see you next week. Cheers. Cheers.